Tech Talk. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up over the next hour, we're taking a deep dive into the world of fishing. You know those annoying text messages that have plagued us all? On post, you've missed our delivery. For the re-delivery of your parcel, please visit onpost-package-notice.com and confirm the settlement of €2.38. Amazon items you ordered, DPD delivery failed. Reschedule online. webshop.orbitelectronic.nl slash x.html question mark B020X. AIB, due to unusual activity, your card has been placed on hold. Please visit and follow the on-screen instructions to reactivate aib-ie-hold.com. A customs charge is owed on your on-post delivery. You need to pay €2.70 for your package. Please follow https slash onpost.collectorservices.city onpost.id 2901020. And those text messages that we just heard read out there are four of the many that have landed on my phone over the past few weeks. They've all come from Irish mobile numbers and every single one of them has been a scam. Now, I've fallen into the habit of just rolling my eyes at them, but it is worth acknowledging that the reason they're still being sent out at such a high rate is because people engage with them and the scammers manage to make money from it. Has this happened to you or a member of your family? I know quite a few uh, people who've been impacted and it does cause genuine upset as well as the inconvenience of being out of pocket. But I wanted to know how cybercrimes of this nature are tackled and what can be done to prevent them. So I went out to the headquarters of the National Garda Cybercrime Bureau to meet the team who are tackling these very issues every single day. Yeah, my name is Barry Walsh. I'm the Detective Chief Superintendent in the Garda National Cybercrime Bureau. Uh, our primary function is computer forensics, uh, so that would take the majority of our work. However, in recent years, we've also developed uh, a cyber investigations unit who carry out cyber investigations to cybercrime, as the name suggests. We also have a cyber intelligence function. And finally, we have a cyber prevention office who are tasked with delivering them um, cyber safety messages in respect to cyber criminality and online safety. So from our perspective, I suppose, and Garda Siakon recognised some time ago that um, there was a proliferation of cyber-dependent crime, which is the type of crime that we tend to investigate more frequently than cyber-enabled crime. And in that regard, that was the, the basis behind the re-establishment of the, cyber, or the Garda National Cyber Crime Bureau and the expansion of services we provide. And that was as a direct response to what we were seeing in the, um, in the, uh, the cyber atmosphere, where um, people were encountering difficulties with ransomware, uh, phishing, smishing, and various other types of criminality that required a specialised response. So that's the purpose of the Garda National Cyber Crime Bureau, is to provide that specialist response and to be able to support people at times of need when they encounter cyber criminality because as we all know um, you know we hear a lot of acronyms associated with cyber criminality and people just don't understand the reality that cyber criminality despite its complexity has its genesis in the same everyday lapses in security potentially that normal crime has and I say that from the point of view I suppose going into our 
you know, the primary message that we're trying to get across this month as part of European Cyber Security Month, which is in relation to phishing and ransomware. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we look at ransomware, which, you know, I think nowadays is discussed uh, very frequently as an inherent danger of operating in the online space. But the genesis of ransomware in probably 50, 60 percent of cases is human interaction with a phishing email. So that basically means that a person receives a fraudulent email representing itself as having emanated from a legitimate source, for example, a financial institution, a trusted service provider or other supplier, or even a work colleague. Mm-hmm. Um, at a time when maybe a person is under pressure, depending on the level of social engineering that has preceded that particular email, um, a person engages with that on the basis that the email tells them that some form of security lapse has occurred that requires them to enter their user credentials, which typically is their email or user pass, user identity and password. And that then sends them to um, a, 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 a website that has been generated by criminals solely for the purposes of actually gathering that information and then using it for criminal purposes. So that's a human interaction. Um, and that's the reality of a lot of cybercrime, is it's the human behind the system that represents the point of weakness that criminals tend to exploit. Because as we all know nowadays, you know, there is a huge emphasis in terms of those who are, you know, developing software and computers to, you know, create crime prevention by design. And that's creating a difficulty for the criminals. And, you know, the criminal enterprises are generally orientated towards focusing in on the easy pickings. So the reality is that they are seeing phishing emails and engagement with humans who are not aware of the dangers of that particular phenomenon as the point of access into devices, after which point they deploy ransomware, which has the pervasive impact that we see in large companies, in small companies and across the board in actual fact. Mm. I want to come back uh, to ransomware in a second, but a lot of people will just roll their eyes when they get a phishing or a smishing text email. Some are coming in via WhatsApp now. As we approach Christmas, for example, a lot of people will be ordering things online, gifts online. They'll get texts purporting to be from delivery companies. They need that present to be here. So they're more likely to click through. Um, the, the phishing attempts, it is an attack. It is a form of cyber attack, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, if we were to look at the, the, the volume of a te- cyber uh, ransomware attempts worldwide, we're talking in the hundreds of millions, probably four, five, six hundred million, depending on what year we're talking about. But the simple reality is, and you alluded to it there in the run up to Christmas, um, you know, these, these people, threat actors or criminals or whatever you like to call them, those people who are behind the ransomware phenomenon, they look at these stress factors, as I would call them. So they look for a multiplicity of stress factors. They run up to Christmas, people ordering a number of presents. In the work environment, Friday afternoon, somebody finishing up, um, looking to you know, finish up, get a number of jobs done before they go into the weekend. And they focus in on that particular time period as a mechanism by which to exploit people's attention being divided into a number of tasks. And absolutely, as you say, you know, they, they operate on you know, a, a high volume, potentially low return in terms of people who engage with the, the email or who engage with the text. But the reality is, you know, there's a lot of social, social engineering and a lot of, I suppose, um, research done in the background by these criminals because we have to remember these are professional organised crime groupings. 
just because they're not based in Ireland or they may not have their, you know, their base in Ireland, doesn't change the dynamic that these are people whose sole motivation and whose sole reason for being is to commit criminality. So in terms of how they come to understand people's emotions and when best to exploit people's emotions in terms of deploying phishing emails, the reality is they have a huge, I suppose, foundation in, in tradecraft that they've generated over a number of years. And as I say, those hundreds of millions of attempts to focus in on those who they can kind of identify and exploit and have maximum impact then in terms of deploying ransomware. So, you know, for somebody to get a text, you know, while they may well pass it off, and I understand, you know, that maybe people's time might not, you know, kind of, they might consider their time is not best served by engagement in Garda Shikon in respect of a text. The reality is that is part of a wider criminal enterprise and they have been targeted as part of a wider criminal enterprise with a view to exploiting them or somebody else which is also very important. If it's not them, it will be. It may be somebody else who's been exploited, and that person then will engage with the, you know, the phishing email or text in a way that benefits the criminal in terms of getting access to your system. So, you know, there's no downplaying the importance of phishing emails and, and engaging with phishing emails and the dangers that that creates to individuals, to small enterprises, to medium enterprises. And to large enterprises, and we've seen, I suppose, if we look back some years ago to the WannaCry, um, which is probably one of the better known ransomware deployments. You know, if you look at some of the large scale companies that were impacted by that, you know, they had to swap out all their servers and all their, e- all their uh, IT infrastructure to rid the, the, I suppose, their network of that particular, you know, ransomware. And that cost to them was hundreds of millions, you know. But looking at small enterprises, you know, as we move towards cloud storage and people engaging online in, in the cloud, environment. The reality is for some companies that their whole um, support infrastructure, their you know, their stock ordering, their stock inventory, their purchasing, their HR, um, all their payment systems, you know, nearly everything is online. And if there if your system is then corrupted by ransomware, the simple reality is that for um, a company who has no backups can threaten their viability. So there's no downplaying the seriousness of ransomware. And neither is there any downplaying the simple reality that ransomware to be successful is very, very much depending on people engaging with phishing emails. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the central messages we would send out, uh, you know, at this particular month as part of this particular awareness campaign and generally in the run up to Christmas and really as an everyday occurrence is people cannot, you know, underestimate the importance of training of training their people, training those who work in their organisations, putting in place a test system to make sure that people don't engage with phishing emails. And where to do to constructively engage with anyone who does to say to them, well, actually, you know, this is the dangers if you engage with this to our company and to your potentially your job. So it's, that's how serious this can be for companies who have not backed up properly or don't have the proper backup infrastructure in place to sustain them through a ransomware attack. So the link between phishing emails and ransomware is really, really important um, and should never ever be, be underestimated in terms of one being a genesis for the other and the threat that both cause to companies' viabilities and the costs, not only the ransomware itself, but in mitigating against um, that particular phenomenon or that, tip, that particular type of crime. Mm-hmm. One thing that um, I only really became aware of last year when I spoke to some of your colleagues is the reluctance of some or the hesitation of some to contact Angarda Kona when they've been targeted by a sophisticated uh, phishing attempt or indeed a ransomware attack or some form of data hack because they don't want the reputational damage that's, that comes with this. 
But as I understand it, the reporting to Angarda Siakana is vital because it gives you guys better insight as to what's going on and identifying trends. Of course, absolutely, it's vital. I mean, I suppose, you know, if you were to look at the formal role of Angarda Siakana in terms of investigating cyber criminality, you know, we have a role in prevention, we have a role in investigation. We have a role in, you know, if we're successful, um, detection and prosecution thereafter for those who are involved in this type of criminality. But in, we also have a very, very important role in terms of support. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my experience tells me that people who are impacted by ransomware attacks, I mean, it's a devastating impact on a company. And I mean, you, you talk to people and, you know, they can't comprehend the scale of the or the scale of the destructive impact that ransomware causes on their systems when they don't become available to them. Um, and so on Garnishy Econ and, this, you know, our cybercrime investigation unit, one of the skills that we have is really, uh, I suppose, very unfortunate in that we have been tasked with, car- with carrying out some very, very large ransomware attack investigations. We are probably the only agency in the state that gets full visibility across <laughs> the spectrum of ransomware. We are the agency in the state who get the opportunity to engage with our international counterparts. So we have a huge range of experience that we can bring to bear in terms of supporting you at this particular, this very traumatic time in a company's existence, or even in a, a, you know whether that's a small, medium, or large enterprise, or whether it's even an individual. So you get that benefit. From our perspective, whether you choose not to report or, or, or you know whether you choose not to formally make a criminal complaint or otherwise, which is not something obviously I can advocate, but at the same time understand that sometimes people don't wish to do that. Um, but what we will get is you know we will still get the intelligence because ransomware, like any computer um, uh, software, is constructed by those criminals who deploy it. Mm-hmm. So you know us being able to kind of interact with that ransomware will enable us to get some understanding of their tradecraft, which I alluded to earlier, how they, their modus operandi, how they actually enter the system, the point of weakness in your system, we might be able to tell you that. Um, you know, so you will, you know, we will get benefit and you will get benefit. And you know, if it's a case that people want to, re- want to formally engage thereafter in terms of filing a criminal complaint for us to investigate, I mean, that is you know, for another day really. In terms of when a ransomware attack happens, we, you know, the message I suppose I want to give people is we are here in the first instance to support you at a very traumatic time and to try and guide you back to where you can become operational again. But to do that in a way, I suppose, that enables us to gather the evidence, whether that's for intelligence or prosecution purposes, you know, ultimately at that particular point in time is not the, crit- is not the primary concern. The primary concern is making sure that you can become, that the, the, the person who's impacted can again become operational that their systems can be restored and that essentially we can then move forward in whatever way suits everybody thereafter. So, you know, that that consideration whether a prosecution is going to follow or otherwise can be considered after a week or 10 days when they, I suppose, the dust settles for want of a better way of putting it, when somebody has had the time to take stock of the full scale of what's been, what's been inflicted upon them, the impact of what's been inflicted upon them by way of a ransomware attack and have had the benefit of getting their systems back up and running, which of course is the primary you know, concern for any private or public sector enterprise when they're a victim of a ransomware attack. You mentioned the word prosecution there, and obviously when a ransomware attack happens, the most famous one in this country is the attack on the HSC. Uh, that had wide-ranging uh, long-term impact on the HSC, and indeed individuals who couldn't interact with the, the services for quite some time. 
Do prosecutions often happen when it comes to cybercrime? Because it makes a big splash on the headlines, everyone gives out, is inconvenienced, and then we kind of forget about it. So how common is the uh, prosecution and then hopefully a conviction? Well, the reality is people can be assured that we don't forget about it, which is, very, which, is, which is, I suppose, a very, very important phenomenon. So, listen, there's no point in me pretending that cyber crime investigations are simple because by their very nature, they tend to be complex, but they also tend to be multi-jurisdictional or cross-transnational cross cross in nature. So what we tend to have to do is to engage with um, other you know, um, service providers, law enforcement entities, and a variety of other people who we will glean information from um, and then we obviously have uh, the you know the other dynamic whereby you know many of the people who are responsible live in jurisdictions or base themselves in jurisdictions that are not readily supportive of, of, of you know providing information to to um, you know countries like Ireland mm-hmm. so there are difficulties but yes there are successes you know and that's the reality you know, and in terms of the, you know, you mentioned the, H- the HSE investigation, which I suppose will be one of the best known investigations in this date. That's a one that's still been actively worked on by ourselves. Um, it's one that we're making slow but steady progress in terms of, of, you know, bringing it forward. But even, you know, to go back to my earlier point, there has been huge benefit for both parties in that investigation because, again, while obviously the HSE brought in professional support in the terms of them, you know, private sector service providers, they obviously did rely on, you know, um, support of ourselves in the National Cyber Security Centre mm-hmm. in, in the initial response provided. So that's a very, very good example of where a number of parties work together to, I suppose, start from a circumstance where there was, um, you know, you know, complete another kind of, I suppose, a blackout for one, you know, in, in some respects, uh, in terms of their IT infrastructure, and to kind of bring that back online and thereafter to move them forward with an investigation. And from our perspective, you know, we have, you know, learned, you know, an awful lot. We've got an awful lot of intelligence gathering as part of that process. We've learned a lot about the, you know, the entity that have been responsible about it. So that's a good example of where both parties have benefited. And, you know, as I say, that's where we want to be in terms of how, how we do our business. And that's the support we can provide for people. You're listening to Chief Superintendent Barry Walsh, who is the head of the Garda National Cybercrime Bureau. When we come back here on News Talk, I'm going to ask him what can be done to stop those phishing text messages. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. I'm bringing you my conversation with the head of the Garda National Cybercrime Bureau, Detective Chief Superintendent Barry Walsh. And I asked him a little bit about a conversation we had on the show a few months ago with Minister Ushin Smith around tackling the text messages, the scam text messages that we all are plagued with. Minister Oshin Smith had said he would like to see more being done on the network side of things to stop that traffic coming in and targeting consumers. I asked Barry Walsh, what can be done on that front and if the Gardaí engage with different commercial providers? Well, you know, we have a number of work, a number of um, various different industry groups that we're on. So, we would have um, a footprint and an input into those groups in terms of understanding emerging trends and emerging problems and trying to give you know, prevention and security advice um, from our perspective in terms of how best companies can maybe prevent their customers or those who engage with their services be impa- being impacted by these texts. But you know, the reality is I think we see the increased phenomena of these um, particular smishing type texts and I suppose the one piece of advice, you know, I would always give to people um, in respect of these is, you know, most of them have a link and they suggest that you click on a link in the text. 
mm-hmm. you know, a very, very simple way to ensure that you're operating in, in safe territory is to engage with whatever is required via the official app or to, you know, to go out of the text and to do an online search. It's a very simple but impactful way to avoid engaging with that link because it goes back to that particular, you know, the particular message we're sending out this month, which is to think before you click. And, you know, so take that time. And I fully understand, as I said to you earlier, like, you know, criminals are professional, these are professional criminals, part of potentially organised crime groups who have conducted, you know, various research um, and, you know, social engineering in respect of their target groups, the target countries, and understand the various dynamics that will best place them um, to exploit people's awareness of and people's, you know, normal inherent kind of safeguards in terms of engaging with these because of maybe, as I said, the Friday afternoon phenomenon, the run up to Christmas. So peak periods in people's lives where their attention might well be diverted and where they may engage with a link when they otherwise wouldn't. Mm -hmm. So it is about just taking that, you know, time to think before you click. And that's really, really the core message that we are sending out this month. And again, it's going back to this whole thing, this whole, you know, human factor and the impact of the human factor in terms of exposing people to cyber criminality Mm -hmm. and that you know that's just moment to think might be the difference between somebody becoming a victim of crime and somebody not so that's really i can't overemphasize the importance of people just taking time you know and that's the reality of, of of i suppose the most simple way of people preventing themselves becoming victims of this type of criminality. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a few times that these uh, acts are often carried out by professional gangs. Um, I was at Croke Park a few weeks ago at the uh, Cybersecurity Summit and I was struck by one of the speakers who showcased how using an AI chatbot they could develop a, a very comprehensive script for malware. Not only could they get the script for malware, but they could also get talked through or guided through how to execute it. AI is obviously very exciting technology, but there is that fear factor that it could enable non-professionals or just a general bad actor to engage in something that is incredibly uh, complex, i.e. cyber attacks. Is that something that you're looking out for? Is it something that you have encountered at all as of yet? It's not something that we've necessarily encountered in any formal, um, informal guise. But what I would say, it's like any emerging technology. And I mean, we have to remember where we've arrived at now in terms of our, you know, our internet infrastructure. At one point in time, everything was new. So there was a point in time when the internet was new. You know, you have to remember that. There was a point in time where we didn't have mobile phones. And even at that, you know, there was a point in time where our mobile phones didn't, didn't provide us with access to the internet and the range of services that it now provides. And, you know, we even at one point didn't have social media, you know, which people, you know, some generations will not, will, will not remember. But that's the reality, I suppose, of people of my generation will remember that. So, listen, there's no point in pretending that AI and, you know, machine learning and large language modules are, 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 not, um, are not something that pose a threat. But, I mean, you know, if we look at the Internet, I suppose, in terms, if we look at it in terms of the Internet um, and, you know, the reality of that, Yes, there is criminality on the internet, but for all the criminality, 90% of it is, probably more, is, is, is very, very positive impacts on people's lives. Mm-hmm. So, yes, we're aware of the dangers of AI. There's no point in pretending otherwise. But I think it's important that people, there's a sense of balance brought to this particular debate. And the debate, you know, the, the reality is that 
AI will also bring some very, very positive things as well. Um, but from a law enforcement perspective, we have to be aware of it and we have to always be aware of the downside to any new technology that would, you know, otherwise we kind of wouldn't be fulfilling our mandate. So there is a, a big debate in law enforcement about what the future of AI looks like. But that debate is, you know, surrounds how it can be harnessed positively mm-hmm. as well as negatively. And I think, you know, you'll find over time that the positive implications will far away the negative implications. The, you know, if that wasn't the case, then, it, you know, it would probably struggle to receive to, to you know, maintain widespread traction. Mm-hmm. So I suppose it's about looking at those positives as well as being mindful of the negatives, as we have been with all new technology. Yeah. Speaking of positives, I want to briefly mention um, the brilliant work that's been done, particularly by the Department of Justice, in relation to intimate image, uh, image abuse. The awareness campaigns that have been carried out um, on TV, on social media, it's really made an impact, I think, resonated with people. Is abuse of that nature something that falls under your umbrella, or are you more focused on the... Um, I suppose ransomware side of cyber abuse. We tend, because of the fact, I suppose, of primarily at the moment because of the numbers of people we have in the cyber investigations unit, we tend to be more focused on the higher level, the high level type criminality, whether that's ransom, ransomware, DDoS, or other malware deployment. In terms of the imp- intimate image uh, abuse, uh, that tends to be, you know, more located at um, station level where the skill set exists to deal with that type of crime, where a victim can meet a guard face to face from their local station and engage them in terms of that type of criminality. But what I would say is, you know, it's not all doom and gloom in the cyber landscape either. So the reality is, you know, you saw the benefit of the awareness um, and the actions taken in terms of intimate image abuse and how that has now become very, very common knowledge. The same, you know, to a large extent is the reality of cyber criminality. And, you know, if we were to look at is the message getting through, you know, I think the general consensus, while it's very, very difficult to get, you know, global tangible figures for ransomware and you know cyber criminality general the general consensus is that you know cyber criminality in the last couple of years is on the decline and that that reality is borne out by the fact that people are much more aware now and in the same way as i mentioned earlier on you know you know there's certain generations had no computer literacy or very little computer literacy it has to be developed over years i mean most young people now are very very computer literate Mm -hmm. so that phenomenon is changing. How computers are designed is now kind of much more security conscious. How you know our, we operate in our financial systems are much more security focused. So you know the society is now reacting in a much more robust way to the dangers of of, of um, cyber criminality. And you know we would hope that you know the continued emphasis on awareness and the continued emphasis on education, and if we can kind of get traction across you know the private and public sector where companies you know, educate their staff as to the dangers of engaging with links and how that's linked to ransomware and the implications that ransomware can have for a company's viability and the company's ability to trade. Mm-hmm. You know, if they take the message seriously um, and, you know, we would be impressing upon them the importance of doing that, that, you know, over time we will continue that downward trend and we will continue that increased awareness and training and education, which is so fundamentally important in prevention of any type of crime. Mm-hmm. You know, even normal everyday crime, I suppose, that we see street crime, uh, you know, that we would see uh, occurring, you know, on a person-to-person basis. The fact that it's online doesn't change that dynamic. It's still a person-to-person. It's just the weapon is a computer and, a, a, you know, a network. Mm-hmm. But the reality is if people are aware of the dangers of the computer and the network and the person behind that, well, then that can only benefit, you know, the crime prevention message that we're trying to get out.
Yeah, I know that you've got five centres around the country and I'm just wondering, do you anticipate the size and the scale of this bureau expanding over time as more and more services and more and more aspects of our day-to-day lives move into the online sphere? Because at the moment, you know, if there is a burglary, maybe someone just breaks in through the window or maybe in a few years to come, uh, they might, you know, infiltrate the home security system, which is all going to be cloud-based, that type of thing. Do you anticipate your team scaling as the level of threat perhaps increases? I suppose... That's something that's uh, still a matter for consideration. That, like at present, we are still in a, a growth process. You know, if we look when we started only six years ago, we were based in one centre with probably 25 or 30 staff. We're now, as you said, they're correctly based in five locations with about 76 uh, team members, and we're hoping to go that a little bit more next year. So, um, I suppose in the same way as I'm advocating awareness amongst the public, from my perspective, I think you know it's impossible for us probably as a bureau to meet the you know the the everyday requirements of cyber criminality and you know where people have their cards compromised there's such a different myriad of cyber enabled and cyber dependent criminality that requires a level of knowledge to deal with so i suppose one of our key goals is to you know ensure that you know every guard has a level of knowledge in this particular area has an appropriate level of knowledge i suppose every guard would have a level of knowledge but is to have an appropriate level of knowledge and to have an awareness of the emerging trends the emerging risks and the emerging requirements of their role in order to meet those trends and risks so from for us i suppose it'll be continuing our education program mm-hmm. for people on the street and people at station level at operational guardy who people are going to interact with and then, obviously, as the need arises, we put forward business cases for consideration mm-hmm. in terms of looking at expanding the Bureau's uh, footprint and the Bureau's service provision uh, capabilities. But I suppose for now, I think we've come a long way in five or six years. Um, we, we're, you know, we're still developing, um, um, but you know, we have you know, a range of services now that probably enables the organisation to support our people on the ground and meet the high le- higher level needs in the cyber criminality, criminality field. Okay, my final question is, we've spoken a lot about uh, phishing, smishing, ransomware. Is the message here for anybody who fears that they may have been impacted, so maybe they clicked on a link and they put details in, should they get on to, is it the local guard station, should they reach out, even if they do feel a bit foolish or embarrassed or they're kicking themselves about it? Yeah, so there should be no so no emotion of embarrassment or you know silliness or any other sentiment like that in terms of being duped. The reality of the situation is what people should deal with. If they have a sense that they have been compromised as a result of engaging with a phishing email, um, a smishing text, or whatever other mechanism that has caused them to you know, potentially provide user credentials um, to gain access into a, finance, a bank account, into some form of other service that they use that will involve you know, theft either to the service provider or to themselves, they should go in the first instance to their guard. And I think you know, conservatism is probably the best approach here. Go to the guard, talk to them, take advice. You know, there's also the option, I suppose, the immediate option, particularly if it's a financial institution, is, uh, you know, to maybe contact your financial institution. And, you know, when you log on to your 
bank, you know, you ring your bank, you will always hear messages where they're aware the crime is going on and they're trying to deal with it too. So they'll support us as well in the same way as the guards will. So I suppose for any professional entity, whether that's a financial institution or ourselves, you know, what we want to do is try and support people in their time of need. And it goes back to what I'm saying in terms of ransomware. Our primary goal is to support people. We obviously have a role to play in terms of investigation and hopefully detection and prosecution. Mm -hmm. But in terms of prevention, that is the best form of defence as far as I'm concerned, is to support people in preventing crime and become a victim through cyber criminality. That was Detective Chief Superintendent Barry Walsh, head of the Garda National Cybercrime Bureau. And when we come back here on News Talk, we'll hear how encryption impacts the team tasked with collecting and collating cyber forensics. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. This week, I'm out at the Garda National Cybercrime Bureau meeting members of the team that tackle serious cybercrime issues. Before the break, we heard from the head of this bureau, but now we're going to meet members of the cyber forensics team. Sean Durkin and Detective Sergeant at Garda National Cybercrime Bureau. So cyber forensics is a branch of forensic science that deals with the collection and preservation analysis of electronic evidence from digital sources, such as phone phones, laptops, um, smart smartwatches, um, anything that that's, has a memory. So we're we're much aligned to the um, guidelines of the Chief Police Association, where in relation to the um, proper analysis, proper um, kind of uh, digital digital examination. So fundamentally, it's all about get, gathering evidence from a digital device and presenting in such a way that people can understand it. Mm-hmm. So we all know that, and we've all been told over the years, ever since I was a kid, you know, what goes online stays online. Even if you think you've removed something, there's usually some form of trace where people can screenshot things. How difficult or easy is it to gather digital evidence? Um, fundamentally, it all depends on what, what, what image or what device you're looking at. Um, unfortunately, with the advancements of technologies, um, threat actors and criminals and people are engaging with are using methods that um, are preventing us get gathering gathering the initial um, evidence that may be using um, Tor network or um, any, any means they may be cleaning their devices, anti-forensic tools. Mm-hmm. So it's in essence, it all depends on the actual device we're interacting with. Some are easier than others, and some which are doing encryption issues. So at modern computers, we're finding um, quite challenging. So it all depends on the actual specific case and on, on how our inter- interaction with it is. And what about things like encryption? Um, and how problematic is that from your side? Because we've all been told from a consumer point of view to enable 2FA across all of our social platforms, all of our banking platforms, all of our online platforms as a whole. But when it comes to investigating criminality, and I don't necessarily mean the sophisticated crime gangs, even just on a lower level, is there a way around that? or, Or what way do you navigate that field? Um, encryption is a big issue in relation to the advancement of technology. Um, with modern computers, they're using uh, TP chips or specific um, brands out there are more difficult than others. Um, it all depends on what information we get for the analysis of a particular case. So for argument's sake, with the passwords maybe supplied in advance, if that's the case, then we, have, we, we were able to um, get into the device. We have a, we have a particular um, 
uh, the encryption suite with which we utilize. So it allows us then to kind of um, interact with the hash that we've generated to see can we pull uh, passwords uh, password from, from that image. Now, it is something that is quite challenging. Um, we are constantly upskilling. Um, we are engaging with law enforcement agencies um, and um, vendors out there in relation to make sure that we're, we're at the best point we possibly can to deal with this issue. But it is something that is... Um, that is, is challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, we mentioned earlier in the show about the ransomware attack on the HSC. Touch wood, that doesn't happen again. But if it were to happen, at what point does your team come in and what role do you play? Like, what, what, where, Can you kind of talk me through the timeline of what you do and how quickly, if at all, progress is made? Uh, fundamentally, it's important that we come in at the very initial stage. Like we're there to gather as much evidence as possible in order that we're able to detect and, and bring bring the perpetrators to justice. So, for argument's sake, um, the patient zero is the, the, the point of contact that device. So, if we can analyse that device as, as, as quickly as possible, it allows us to create a picture of, of how the attack attack originated, um, how they're able to get into the system, and then what what that that um, attack attack kind of. Um, manifest itself, how would they have to go across the network. Mm-hmm. So fundamentally, we're there to gather to gather as much information as we possibly can to identify the perpetrators, um, allow for attribution, who, who we can say they are, and to see how, how it interacted. But is there ever a point of frustration that these investigations can take a while? Because the nature of uh, cyber attacks is that they can be perpetrated by anybody anywhere in the world at any given time. I think it's more of a challenge in the sense that these, these um, as you rightly say, these um, crimes can be committed um, with ease across borders. Mm-hmm. So fundamentally, it's, it's, it's down to our international collaboration with our law enforcement um, partners that allows us to kind of share information and also gather information. So while, while they may be complex, they're also running at a pace that is quite, quite efficient and quite effective. Mm-hmm. Um, as with any investigation, it's important that we gather as much in, in, um, evidence as possible. So um, it is important that we, that, we, that we take our time, that we're prudent in our analysis and, and that we, that we go, literally don't leave any stone unturned. Mm. Um, a lot of people have been listening to different podcasts that relay what happens at different court cases. And digital evidence more and more is featuring in uh, crimes of all natures. How important is it to clearly articulate what exactly the digital evidence entails and also the significance of it because sometimes I know myself people's eyes glaze over when I'm talking because it's very acronym heavy or there's a lot of jargon so how do you break down the complexity of digital evidence to in a way that I suppose resonates either with judges or juries um, it's vital on us as giving um, evidence in courts or even into the media or even to external stakeholders that we remove as much jargon as possible and remove the acronyms that we explain into the language that is easy understood so rather than using uh, digital, deva- devi- digital data finding devices we say information found in a computer mm-hmm. so that allows the ordinary person to understand and that they're not grasping as to what is, what is the meaning of that fundamentally um, digital evidence and digital investigations is quite intricate it is the um, the language can be used can be um, very kind of um, misleading but it's important that we reach out to the, to the receiver that they understand it like especially in court cases we make sure that we, we get to a level we start at a particular point we build the case mm-hmm. so rather than going in at a very high level we literally start at the very beginning this is a device this is what we did and this is how we interact with it so it builds a picture or a jigsaw that the person can understand mm-hmm. um, again it is imperative of us that, that we do that because the last thing we want is for any information 
translation to be lost in translation uh, or, or, or there for it to be any um, ambiguity in what we say. I know that the nature or I assume the nature of the content that crosses your desk varies in terms of the level of nerdiness for want of a better phrase but also in terms of the level of upset that it can cause mm. and I'm sure that there have been um, deeply upsetting investigations carried out how are you supported how are your team supported in dealing with that so that you know you're not absorbing it all and also you can go home at the end of your day so um, each member when they come into the bureaus guard the national cybercrime bureau um, is required to attend a mandatory psychological support session within three months of their allocation um, from this they're also required to attend a, a well-being seminar which uh, focuses on areas such as um, a person well-being, self-care, stress management, um, situational awareness, and also um, support services that are available to them. Mm-hmm. Following on from this, they're then required to attend one six-monthly psychological assessment, and should the need arise, they're allowed to, to reach out at any particular point in time. So fundamentally, for us as a, as a supervisor, as a manager, mm-hmm. the health and well-being of my team members is, is, is fundamental. It is, it is important that we put our... Um, concentration on their well-being because unfortunately they are interacting with um, um, media that is quite quite upsetting is quite graphic and it's important that they're able to leave that behind the minute they walk out the door and not bring it home with them it's an important part of the job and it's great to see that those structures are in place so that it's ingrained in the in the outset or from the outset of the role and um, i'm just curious how do the skill sets of members of the guard and national cybercrime bureau vary from Gardaí that are you know in the roads traffics division for example are you all technically minded first and foremost and then there's the level of policing put on top of that or is it just a speciality in the same way doctors would go through different levels of training as they're progressing through their careers I think um, as police officers there's a national uh, a natural kind of intuition built in so so we're no different than a detective in fraud bureau or a a traffic members that we're there to follow the evidence and where does it lead so the vast majority of members that are attached here um, within my team and other teams have have degrees and masters um, uh, relative to digital forensics we're also engaging in upscaling to other law enforcement seminars we attend vendor-led training and also for peer sharing and knowledge sharing so we we find in our bureau that the answer is usually found in the room there's lots of lots of knowledge in here and it's imperative that we share share and collaborate as much as possible and we peer review so we're no different than anybody else and that we always try and f- try and go to the zen degree to, to um not only gather the, gather the information intelligence, but also in a way that is understandable, that, 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 that allows, allows the investigators to, to, to follow a particular lines of inquiry. Mm. Um, I've asked this question of everybody, so I may as well ask you as well, but we know that artificial intelligence is a buzzword in 2023. Is that something that you anticipate infiltrating the world of cybercrime and being a core part of what you do, either as an asset and a tool for your team or as another tool for the bad actors to utilise? I think it's, it, you can see it on both sides. So for artificial intelligence has wonderful um, um, wonderful ways that we, we can exploit it for our, our aims, but also it can be exploited by, by the threat actors and by people who are wishing to engage in it. Um, so it all depends on what your motive is. So our motive is to try and protect the innocent, protect the vulnerable, protect those that can't, can't protect themselves. So we, try and, we will utilise it 
within the Pacific remit that we are. Unfortunately, there are those that wish to exploit it for other means. So that's the area we're in. Uh, we're in the we're in the, the cyber world. So it's imperative that not only is it there, but we understand and how to utilise it effectively. So that comes through constant upskilling and training and development, which is a core f- um, forefront of the bureau and and also of of the Angarshigana. Yeah, that was Detective Sergeant Sean Durkin of the Cyber Forensics Division of the Garda National Cybercrime Bureau. Uh, next week on the show, I'm going to bring you conversations with those working in cyber investigations as well as cyber intelligence. Uh, But to summarise, the key advice here is if you get a text or a link purporting to be a service provider, a bank, whatever it is, just don't click. Go to this particular service provider's app or website and engage directly. If you or someone you know has clicked through a link and you think your accounts have been compromised, get on to your local guard. Uh, They are very aware of the prevalence of these types of scams and they're there to help. If you have been targeted and you're looking for some advice or further information, you can email techtalk at newstalk.com. But that's it from me this week. If you missed any of the show, you can listen back in full on the Newstalk app powered by GoLoud. I'll be back with Shane and Kira on Monday's News Talk Breakfast. But in the meantime, have a great weekend.